Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The news and images from Hawaii are difficult to process. Emergency management officials are still searching for victims of the wildfires. In addition, an unprecedented number of homes and other buildings are destroyed, and Native Hawaiians are coping with the loss of important cultural landmarks and other touchstones. And while residents assess the damage, scientists warn this may only be the beginning of a troubling trend. We'll get the perspective from residents on the ground in Hawaii right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Looks like a bomb went off there. It's totally wiped out. That's how the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement CEO, Kahia Lewis, describes the Maui wildfires. Lewis says fire has destroyed Lahaina, which is significant in Native Hawaiian history, the capital of their kingdom, where chiefs made decisions. What most people see is a tourist destination, this cool old town hangout. It really, it it had so much sacredness to it. I mean, our chiefs are buried there. This is also where we had part of our our immersion school, our Hawaiian language revitalization program. That has also burned. Um, And just the stories that we're hearing come out of there where families um, have to watch their loved ones perish right in front of them. It's just just heartbreaking. This emotional toll, in addition to just the cultural significance, is a lot. Lewis has assessed the devastation firsthand in order to better help those in need. We've been very active on the ground um, to try and provide supplies, and it's been overwhelming from around the world. People have been sending support, love, and I I really feel that, you know, through this, we're going to get through it. I mean, that, that spirit of aloha, that vibrancy that everyone gets to experience when they come to Hawaii, will carry us forward. Last week, the organization launched a donation drive. They've raised about $1.5 million from corporate donations, and the community has matched funds, bringing it to nearly $4 million. We're going to need a, need a lot of resources right now. Um, and, and these are for things that FEMA might not cover, the state won't cover. I mean, we already are hearing that families have been denied assistance from FEMA. Uh, so we're going to have to step up and fill the gap. And so our fund is in place to support those families. Uh, we already have containers arriving on island to ensure that people have food to eat, water to drink, um, you know, clothes to wear. They've lost everything. They have, they, they don't, even their identification, everything just, they have to evacuate so quickly. Lewis says it's going to be a long recovery. As Guatemala's turbulent electoral campaign draws to a close with runoff elections on Sunday, indigenous women came to the nation's capital for a weave-in to protest government interference in the elections. Maria Martin has this report. Dozens of Maya weavers knelt on the ground while working colorful fabrics on backstrap looms as their leaders recited the message they'd all come to deliver. We weave culture, we weave democracy, they said. We weave stories, we weave hope and joy while the Justice Department weaves corruption and pimps for criminals, they said. 
Spokesperson Edi Satik of the National Movement of Maya Weavers said the women represented more than 20 different ethnic groups who were protesting actions by Guatemala's attorney general and some judges and prosecutors who have attempted to block the party of anti-corruption candidate Bernardo Arevalo. He'd surprised everyone by coming in second in the June 1st round election. Now polls show him leading. If he wins next Sunday, it would be the first time a center-left government wins in Guatemala in more than 70 years. And these women, like many among Guatemala's substantial indigenous voters, have high hopes that Bernardo Arevalo of the Semilla or Seed Party will make changes to help Guatemala's marginalized Maya communities. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Officials say the wildfire on the island of Maui is the deadliest wildfire in the United States in more than a century. It started last week and swept through the town of Lahaina, destroying houses and businesses, along with historical and cultural sites. Hurricane winds pushed flames faster than some residents and visitors could escape. Emergency management officials count 106 casualties, but that number is expected to rise. Thousands of people are misplaced, and the monetary toll is in the billions of dollars. For Native Hawaiians, the wildfire is a devastating blow to their lives and their culture. We'll learn more about the cultural and historical significance of Lahaina. We'll also talk about the response and recovery efforts so far. Emergency officials, residents, and scientists are weighing in on the causes of the fire. And please join us. What should people know about wildfire prevention and emergency response? You can give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. We'll get your comments on the air. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Let's meet our guests now. Joining us first from the island of Maui is Carmen Hulu Lindsay. She's a representative of Maui as a chair of the Board of Trustees for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. She is Kanaka Maui. Carmen, welcome to the show. Yes. Aloha. Thank you for having me. Aloha to you as well. Joining us from Kahala on the island of Oahu is Dr. Sydney Iokea. She's the author of The Queen and I, A Story of Dispossessions and Reconnections in Hawaii, and Ke'a'a, The Making and Saving of North Beach, West Maui. She's Native Hawaiian. 
Sydney, welcome to the show. You've been on our show before. I, I appreciate you coming back to join us. Aloha. Thank you for having me back, Sean. Aloha. Joining us from Waianae in Hawaii is Eric Enos. He's the executive director of Ka'ala Farm and Cultural Learning Center. He's Kanaka Maoli. Hi, Eric. Thanks for talking with us today. Aloha and good morning. Aloha as well. And joining us is Clay Traurnicht also. He's the assistant specialist in the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Clay, welcome to the show. Aloha to you as well. Morning. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well, but certainly gravely concerned about the people of Hawaii. And with that, I'd like to begin with Carmen. And first and foremost, thoughts and prayers to the people of Maui in the midst of this horrible tragedy. Carmen, how is your family doing? My family is well, but we were evacuated on the morning of uh, Tuesday at 4 a.m. I live in Kula, and there, there were fly, uh, fires in Kula as well as Lahaina. We were not as uh, affected up here in Kula as, as they were in uh, Lahaina, but our fire is still going on. And uh, is it true, I mean, some people were even diving into the ocean just in order to escape the flames. It was that fast, that sudden, that unexpected. Oh, yes. The stories that we've been hearing about the Lahaina people is just absolutely horrifying. I mean, there was just no place to go. The traffic was back up, and uh, the people were just scattering. They didn't know what to do. And out of desperation, the ocean was right there on the left on Front Street in Lahaina. And there was a family with four children, mom and dad, and they all, all six of them jumped into the ocean, and they survived today. Mm. Jeez, that's just... Yes, very, very sad stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, really, again, thank you for, for talking with us. I know you're there on the island. It must be really stressful. It must be really difficult to, to be in the midst of all this. But, uh, Carmen, tell us a little bit more uh, about the cultural significance of Maui and, and Lahaina specifically. It has a long, long history. Well, Lahaina, as you well know, was formerly our, our capital, our island capital, uh, named the capital by Kamehameha II. So um, all of the activities, uh, the uh, what we called our government back then, was conducted in Lahaina. So it has a major significance, but there's nothing left, nothing left there. So, um, you know, I don't know if people have been to Lahaina and know about the, the banyan tree that's there. It's probably the oldest banyan tree in the state of Hawaii, and it's a huge tree uh, that's burned. The Pioneer Inn that people really um, identify Lahaina with, which is right up against the pier and the ocean, that's gone. I mean, just everything is leveled. But this banyan tree, um, people are like, um, well, the, the few people that are allowed to go in there, it's, it's blocked from any access by people because the business district, um, they're trying to keep it alive so that it can be at least a significant um, part 
of the old Lahaina that people will remember. So um, we have construction companies like doing life-saving um, actions on that tree, and we're hoping that that survives. But there's nothing else. The whole front street is is wiped out, our whole business district. Mm. Carmen, just listening to you describe the devastation and what's going on, what's going through your mind right now, as well as other Native Hawaiian people? I mean, what, obviously, you're just, it's still the very early stages, probably, of this grief and this loss, but... uh, I mean, this area has so much significance, so much history. Um, I mean, is there any way that any of this could be rebuilt or recreated in any way going forward? I believe we're going to try. The Bailey House Museum is asking for access uh, so that they can uh, find whatever is um, available to to rescue so that we can uh, continue our historical part of Lahaina and, and make sure people don't forget what it was. And, and well, I mean, there's no, there's no explanation on the devastation, but uh, at least we're thinking, how can we revive some of this history? And um, we're hoping to see that go forward. And uh, how about the Office of Hawaiian Affairs? Are, are they in a position to assist now and in the future? I believe um, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs is in a position to help in whatever way we can. Uh, we're definitely helping our people, the Kanaka Maoli. Uh, as you well know, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs uh, mission is to improve the conditions, the living conditions of our Hawaiian people. So we are standing by to get a list so that we can uh, directly help them financially, especially in this time of need. There are other um, uh, people in uh, in Lahaina that's trying to help them. Of course, we have FEMA in the state of Hawaii as well. Uh, the state of Hawaii has... Um, paid for a block of hotel rooms so that our people are in shelter and and in livable shelter. Um, We also have um, GEM in Maui. I don't know if you're familiar with the work they do in Ukraine, the Global Environment Mission. Um, They are offering our people short-term rentals right now. And OHA is facilitating them. Uh, Yesterday, we awarded $500,000 worth of vouchers to people that didn't have to be Hawaiians, all people that are displaced from the fires. Um, We also, uh, GEM also gave out um, uh, gift cards, $50,000 worth of gift cards. So Hawaii is so grateful for people moving in here and just wanting to help us. And our people really need the help. So we're very, very grateful for all that's coming from offshores to Hawaii at this time of need. And Carmen, the community response. I've seen images of volunteers 
helping to move supplies, emergency supplies. What about local businesses, other small community groups? Are are they assisting as well in, in all these relief efforts? Everyone, everyone is assisting. It's just amazing. The University of Hawaii Maui campus has organized the top chefs of Maui from hotel to um, restaurants, and they provide 9,000 meals every day to the people that are displaced as well as the responders that are trying to clean up. And that is really, I, I mean, that's so, uh, you know, you and I know that we have to eat three meals a day, and mm-hmm. these people have been getting them, and we're so happy for that. And the 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 citizens of our of our island they're just all converging on the different shelters and um, places of re- receiving goods from people. I, I mean, I got a call from Alaska. There are Hawaiian fishermen there, and they're offering cases of um, salmon fillets to feed our people. Um, and yes, there are lots of people trying to organize the tons and tons of um, goods that have been con- contributed. We can't keep up with the, uh, the amount of goods, but we're asking for, um, you know, uh, the necessities for people to survive, uh, toiletries and that kind of thing. Uh, That's wonderful to hear, Carmen, that there's just such an overwhelming response of support for the people of Maui. We are going to have to take a break here, but we come back, we're going to learn more about uh, this horrible wildfire and also how it's impacted the culture and, and social aspects of Hawaiian people. We'll be right back. A weekend of celebrating Native arts is ahead in New Mexico. The Poe Pathways Indigenous Arts Festival is in its third year of music, pottery, art, and jewelry. It's relatively new in the festival scene, but already attracts hundreds of artists from all over the globe. We'll hear about it on the next Native America Calling. Give kids their best shot at a healthy school year. Make sure their vaccinations are up to date. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. You could contact insurekidsnow.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. Message from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the devastating wildfires in Maui, Hawaii today. Among the buildings and land that have burned are important cultural and spiritual sites. Tell us your thoughts and concerns regarding this tragedy by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line now, on the island of Maui, we have Carmen Hulu Lindsay, who is with the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. And Carmen, you you gave us uh, such a moving description of not only the devastation there on Maui, but also just the overwhelmingly positive response of both government officials and community people, just a a huge display of support for, for the people of Maui. 
And I also want to ask you about tourists because we're, we're reading here uh, in, over here in, the, in New Mexico and places where I am. And, you know, we hear about uh, tourists. They still want to go to Hawaii. They're still trying to, to go and visit and do touristy things. And I want to ask you before moving on to our next guest, what's your message to tourists in Hawaii right now? We're asking our tourists to be respectful of our people, of our uh, sensitive situation here, and don't come to our island. I'd like for them to stay away until we're settled. Uh, and we so appreciate their visits, but now is not the time. Understood. Understood. Thank you so much uh, for that advice, Carmen. Let's now go to Dr. Sydney. Ecolea Iokea, Dr. Sydney Iokea. I'm sorry, Sydney. And uh, you're uh, from the island of Maui. And, and earlier we heard uh, the history and cultural significance of Lahaina from, from Carmen. Can you take us deeper into the history of the town and, and why it was so special to Hawaiian royalty? Yes. Um, aloha. Aloha, everyone. Uh, first, I just want to send my heartfelt love and aloha to Maui, especially Lahaina. I'm on Oahu now, but I am born and raised on Maui, and um, I was actually the first Miss Lahaina back in the day when I was uh, <laughs> doing pageants and living and working in Lahaina. Um, so Lahaina is dear to my heart. I've written a bunch about the historical background because I was really curious about the place itself. So as um, as Carmen just mentioned, uh, Lahaina is the capital of Hawaii. Uh, up until 1845, 1839 is the Declaration of Rights were signed by Kamehameha III. And then 1840, the first constitution of the Hawaiian kingdom was signed there. And the uh, legislature of the kingdom met um, in Lahaina. Uh, the government school that was started in 1880 at Waine Church was moved to its current site, uh, named Kamehameha III School, and that's where he worked and lived, uh, the Ali'i. Um, it actually started with Kamehameha I. He made Lahaina his royal residence after he united the islands. And then, like like she mentioned, the second and the third um recognize the space as the as the capital um there's so much history in lahaina even prior so it's a pu'uhonua or a city of refuge and one of the uh, historic erasures of, but it's still there today is moku'ula and so lahaina town itself is considered i i in my research i read it's like the pico or the center of hawaiian knowledge for the island chain because it's roughly located in the middle, but within Lahaina is the space called Moku'ula, which is the pico within the pico or the center um, of knowledge and connection. And it's it's that man-made island that's the center that was located in the center of Loko'o Mokuhimia, which was a freshwater pond. So Waine'e is actually the name of the Ahupua'a and it means flowing water, and it's also the name of a street that's connected to Moku'ula today. Um, so we know that water was flowing through Lahaina from the West Maui Mountains up until it was diverted in large parts. And this is when I was on your show last time, I was talking about the sugar plantations. 
<clears throat> and the water diversion. So this is one of the examples where the water was diverted um, to the plains of uh, the west side. And what it did was it created stagnant water in Moku'ula. And so the territorial government came in in 1917 and reclaimed. They passed a reclamation act to, quote, reclaim the area, and they filled it with dirt. Um, and then it became a baseball field for the sugar plantation laborers. Um, so that incredibly sacred site that has been, you know, a vahipana for generations of Hawaiians prior to Kamehameha I with Pi'ilani and prior even is still covered in that um, and filled. So that is probably the, you know, the, 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 um, like the absolute bahipana of the space when I look at it um, and the idea that even after they covered it, Pioneer Mill used it for as a dumping site. So there's a lot of um, energy in that space. And then there's a lot of desecration to that space. And I know the friends of Moku'ula were trying to restore it for years. Um, so anyway, that's that's just a general idea of the, the sacred sites in Lahaina. And then just one last note, when I was doing my research, uh, looking at Ka'anapali, the ones that created Ka'anapali as a destination resort area in 1962, proclaimed Lahaina as um, a national heritage landmark. And they wanted to remake Lahaina because it's, it's a sleepy, and we've all heard the quote, the sleepy seaside town. And a lot of those buildings are planted from the plantation era. Uh, and But they, they highlighted the whaling discourse alongside the missionary discourse and um, in order to attract tourists. So it was intentional. Um, Sydney, yeah. when did Lahaina become such a popular tourist destination? Was it in the 1960s? So uh, I think it... So the idea was to created into a popular tourist destination. So it's the Pioneer Mill officials, Amphak Ka'anapali, and then the county of Maui. Um, that So Ka'anapali is really the first resort destination uh, area in the world, like large scale. And so the idea was to create Lahaina as a place for people to go during their visit. And by, by the, the, also the idea of heritage tourism uh, connecting it to a past was highlighted in the 1962 report that designated Lahaina District, Historic District 1 and 2. Um, so I think from from that era, pushing forward through the 90s, the problem was that there's only two actual whaling structures in Lahaina on Front Street. One was a, wa a spring house for the water the other was a reading room for the officers located in, in the Richards house, who were the missionaries, uh, Richards and Baldwin. Uh, so creating a, a theme around whaling took research into what it might look like. So they borrowed, I guess you could say, from places like Nantucket on the East Coast. So it, a lot of it has been created as um, this like destination resort. And bringing forward like the like the different buildings that are important to our historic um, district, and at the same time, 
there's also so much history there that is not uh, part of that narrative that that is still there. Like Moku'ula is still there. It's a different, you know, Kamehameha III, um, Hale Ti'ula, his royal palace, the remnants, like the area still contains the deep history um, along with the historic sites that are celebrated or have been celebrated for since the 1960s. But I think when I was reading the the documents from the Maui County archives, the concern was how do you bring out the other elements of Lahaina that are as important as the missionary and the whaling narratives? Um, because the history itself is so important to Hawaiians. Uh, through our genealogy. Right, right. And Sydney, we hear, you know, these billions of dollars of, of losses that, uh, economic losses as a result of the wildfire, but yet a lot of those dollars are, are, are people really concerned about how it's going to impact the tourism industry, right? And, oh, you know, it's all these hotels that aren't going to be open and, and people aren't going to be coming to visit and and staying in restaurants and, and things like that. And what's your response to that when, when you hear so much concern about the tourism industry and the tourism economy as opposed to the people and the families and the communities that have been there for so many years? From my perspective, I'm hearing more about the families and the people and waiting to um, just, you know, know that my own loved ones and family that still live in West Maui are okay. Uh, so I haven't given too much attention to that whole outside that um, narrative that might be happening, although I know it is there and it is important for the state of Hawaii because apparently 30% of our tourist revenue comes from Lahaina. Um, but from my perspective, that's really not part of um, my concern at the moment. Okay. Although I know it's there for the for the rest, even for the rest of the island, to because we have been so closely tenored to the tourist industry. But I think that's actually why I wrote um, the Kaa book was because I was really questioning why we are so and how that happened and how it continues without uh, really breaking that dependency. So my stance on tourism is um, coming from my own experience of working in the hotels when I was 19 and actually wanting to get out of that because it was not what I foresaw in my future. Um, so I have like this emotional connection to what can we do instead of that? Even as I know it's important, it has been important, and sure. it will be important going forward, um, maintaining parts of that industry, and also what else can we do to break that dependency? Sydney, what about the, the people who have been displaced? Um, what are the concerns going forward? I mean, are they going to be able to return at some point to Lahaina? Is it possible they'll have to move to another island? How's that all going to work? I, I can't speak to that directly because I don't want to speak for them. But I think um, moving forward, I think the leaders from our community on the west side and in Lahaina should be making those decisions and should be at the table 
talking about how to get people back into their homes, uh, having how things will be rebuilt, how they'll be supported in the meantime. I mean, this is an unbelievable tragedy, like we all know, and it's just really heartbreaking to think of what's happened. Um, so for, from my perspective, I think that the, the, the leaders that we have, all these leaders in Lahaina and on Maui, and they should be given the chance to work alongside whoever's um, restructuring the town and how it will be, um, how it will come back to life. Because Lahaina is still there. It's just the buildings have been destroyed and lives lost, but the, the mana of the place is still present. Sydney, thank you for joining us today and and talking and being so candid uh, and, and explaining just some of the history there and also just what's what's happening now. Really appreciate you you sharing that information. I'm going to go ahead now and, and bring Eric Enos into the conversation. And Eric is on. He's actually in Waianae. Uh, I'm sorry, Waianae is where Eric is located in Hawaii. And Eric. Uh, wildfires they're not new to hawaii obviously this fire in lahaina is just a really big fire but fires have been in hawaii for a long time have you seen wildfires sweep through your community there in the past yeah aloha and good morning and i also want to say to join the rest of the group about our pain and you know our aloha for all the families and the suffering yeah but yeah, out in Waianae, wildfire is nothing new. I've uh, it has increased, totally increased in the last. I mean, we've lived here all our lives, and the interface between dry areas and urban, that urban interface, and I think Clay will talk more about that. Is that that's the biggest danger, not only in Hawaii but nationally and worldwide? Yeah, as people build, and you have, especially in the dry areas and their drought areas. And then we have high winds, and then when you have arcing also, you know, with the utility lines, and so and a lot of green barriers. So we really have to really think these kinds of areas. And so we we were caught in a at our learning center back in the Waianae Valley, where we're up against the mountain and we're surrounded by dry dry forest because in Waianae it can go nine months without any rain. So. And we've been able to establish water rights, and uh, that is very important for Native Hawaiians to have some percentage of the water that comes from the forest. We're not asking for all of it. We want our fair share to be put into areas of growing plants for food, medicine, fiber, adornment, spiritual uses, and cultural uses. So it's very important that we start growing our own traditional food and get, getting more of our people to be part of the process of growing the land, growing the people, healing the land, and healing the people. So, um, yeah, we were caught uh, in 2018. We had two school buses up in Waianae, a very windy day, arson, and they lit two fires, and we were trapped for five, six hours, and we were fighting the fires. We told the children, the adults, is that if the fire... Uh, because the fire was going downhill. Uh, I mean, the, the wind was pulling the fire downhill, but the fire wanted to come back up to us. We fought the fire, but if the fire came to us, we told the adults and the children they would have to go into the lo'i 
into the water and and would have to uh, keep themselves from being burned alive. So we were in the middle of it, and 9,000 acres burned from the 2018 fire, and we are working on a fire remediation plan right now. We've been working on it for many years, and it's a and it's a well thought out plan of green barriers growing, uh, growing some of our plants for uh, use, and then and, and also um, putting in paddocks of uh, sheep paddocks. Uh, in the areas that are that we can uh, hold down the fuel load, and and then we also have to deal with the uh, mental and spiritual illness of people uh, who are disconnected from the land, yeah, and and programs uh, for people like that. So it's very very important. So that's a lot said. I'm going to have to take another break, Eric. Um, anyone listening right now, if you would like to to call us and. Uh, just express concern or offer any supportive words to the people of Hawaii. Our phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. SBA wants to see you win. They want to see you grow. They have been so helpful and so resourceful. Thanks to the SBA, my business is thriving today. Make sure you get in touch with SBA and you will definitely be on your way to a winning path. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with folks in Hawaii about wildfire season in the island state and getting updates on Lahaina. Please join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's go ahead and take a call right now. We have Chanupa, who is listening up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Thank you for calling in today. Hey, thank you for having me on, Sean. Um... To the brother and sister that shared her tears response to what this fire has done to them. You know, um, I want to share this. I have I have three brothers over there at the big island of Hawaii, okay? Keith Streeter and um, Archie Ball and Rodney Kyoto. Rodney, on the other hand, he was a Japanese Hawaiian. And they used to tell me about how a lot of the devastation were created by certain people and so corporations would come in and try to take advantage of that and so for the brother and the sister that almost shed her tears which she should have because i felt her pain we go through that stuff every day in indian country lakota country we face the same thing too and my heart goes out to the people in maui because i've been over there too you know there's a saying in our language for the hawaiian people because they're indigenous they say only the great mystery, if you believe in the traditional way, like the brother has said, can give you the answer of what really the cause of this fire is. And I thank you all for bringing this subject on. And uh, I want to say to the listening audience and the people, Aloha to every one of you. It's wrong, and my heart goes out to you people because we face that here in Indian country, in Lakota country of Turtle Island. 
thank you all for this subject, and uh, let's keep our prayers open for all the people that are without homes. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Chanupa. Really appreciate that call. And uh, I do want to note that according to Time Magazine, authorities have not yet determined the cause of the fire. But let's go ahead and let Sydney respond to Chanupa. Sydney, Chanupa is a regular caller here at Native America Calling. He's up in South Dakota, and uh, well, he offers a lot of support and a lot of encouragement and uh, relates uh, as a Native person from South Dakota to some of the challenges that you've been describing here uh, there in Hawaii. What would you like to say to Chanupa? I'd just like to say thank you as well, um, and thank you for your words and uh, the idea of seeing what the fire fire brings. Um, and uh, yeah, I just really appreciate the sentiment uh, from you. So mahalo nui. Thank you, Sydney. I want to go back to Eric now, and Eric. Before break, you were, uh, among other things, you were describing a story of when you and some other people were trapped on a school bus and a huge fire on either side of the road. And I'm just curious, how did you folks get out of that? Because obviously you're here to talk about it. Yeah, we fought the fire and was able to keep it from spreading to our learning center. But the, the road burned, so the bus buses couldn't get out because alongside of our road, you know, abandoned Abandoned tires, cars, appliances. This is the story of a lot of the back roads, you know, because there's no good, you know, places to dump rubbish and they're overfilled. So that's what burned. So the, the road burned, yeah. So it wasn't, and the fire department was, couldn't even come up to help us because arson had lit fires all along the coast. And the first, because of the urban interface, the fire was burning in the next valley next to homes. So they, all the units were fighting those fires. By the time they got up to us, it was too late. Yeah, So we couldn't get the buses out till uh, about five hours later. But at that time, the road was just all, it was still burning. Yeah, And our water lines burned too. So, you know, that fire, you know, it creeped into the next valley and over. So, yeah, I mean, um, and all the farms below us, Millions of all the farms burned. It was very fortunate that no lives were lost, but we could have had another um, issue just like on Maui because if any of those homes caught fire, then after that, the next home would have gone. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we're not over this yet. This is this is going to happen, even going to happen even more. So. Okay. And Eric, I'm reading some reports that that are describing some of these non-indigenous types of plants, especially grasses that have been brought in in some of these areas, and they've grown and they're highly combustible. And and some scientists are suggesting that uh, some of these invasive species could be part of the issue here with regard to some of these recent fires. What's your thought on that? Well, the native Hawaiian dryland forest is one of the best um, the issue is that when it rains and we have the, a rainy season and the, a native forest stores that water underground, yeah. But what happens when uh, when that native forest burns, the, it's being replaced by invasive grasses. And so the next time, then the forest goes. And then after that, the next fire then burns into the forest again. So we lost, we're very, we're losing valuable forestry water retention lands and ability of the land to store the water when it does rain. So what happens when it does rain, the water goes is being eroded. It goes into our ocean and then it covers the, the reef and the coral. So then our, our fish 
gets, uh, you know, so we, we lose our ability to feed ourselves from the ocean. So it's a vicious cycle that gets deeper and deeper repeated. But yeah, invasive species. So it's a long story and the kind of things that we are working on right now in the community to bring back the forest, bring back the water, bring back native plants and bring back useful plants. Yeah. Well, Eric, I want to thank you as well for, for taking the time to talk with us and, and giving us more insight and more information with regard to what's happening there in Hawaii with the wildfires. And uh, let's go ahead and bring Clay Traurnicht into the conversation now. He is a agriculture and human resources expert at the University of Hawaii. And, and Clay, I'd really like to talk a little bit uh, about the response there with, with Hawaii. There have been reports that the response was slow and, and uh, sirens didn't go off to warn people. And tell us a little bit more about how that works there in Hawaii. Does each island have a specific system or a team that's in charge of um, warning people and, and alerting authorities when a, when the fire risk is high, like it was there in Lanai last week? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, that was a lot in that question there. Um, yeah, first of all, my, yeah, my specialty is, is plant science and fire science. And when we talk about the response to these fires, I think the really key, uh, the key thing that folks need to understand is the grasses that, uh, that Uncle Eric was talking about, um, which is sort of, they cover about a million acres of, our, of all the islands, all the main Hawaiian islands. And, and this goes back to this legacy of plantation agriculture um, that your prior guests were speaking about. Um, and so as those farming operations have pulled out, right, what fills in all of that space is are these non-native grasses from all over the world um, that outcompete our native, uh, our native forests, our native plants? And so we're sort of, you know, our, our communities are kind of in these seas of non-native grasslands, which are totally adapted to fire. And as far as the emergency response goes, it's really important to understand that when these fires burn through these grasses, they burn so fast um, that response is very, very difficult. And so the time that our agencies have to respond to these fires um, before they reach structures, before they reach people's homes, um, can be, you know, in the order of minutes. Uh, and so, <clears throat> a number of recent fires. This is not the, the the conditions which led to this fire are not unprecedented. I think that's another thing that that the audience should understand. The loss. Is, is just what's so devastating in this one. Um, but the, the conditions when we have these hot, dry, windy conditions, and then you combine that with these fuels, which are, you know, fundamentally what we're talking about is a failure to care for the land, right, at, at the scale that we need to be. And it's really like projects and, and, and people like Eric who are trying to do this to care for the land and try to, you know, show the ways that we can actually change the the composition of the landscape alter these fuels to some some other um you know forest reforestation farming there's all anything is better than what we're doing now uh really provide our emergency responders safe spaces to work and literally uh you know fighting chance to to get between the fires uh, and the homes um as far as response that's another thing that's pretty unique to hawaii we have our county fire departments who up until this incident have done a phenomenal job at protecting lives and homes. This is why this is so unprecedented. Typically, they are able to get between the fire and the homes. Um, but another thing that has changed, in addition to the fuels, is without farming, without active use of the lands, 
there's very little support for them. In the past, they've relied on road maintenance, water availability, machinery that was on these lands that farmers and ranchers would help uh, to respond to these fires. And so we're limited to the resources on each island, which is the county fire department. Their initial response, they come in right away when the 911 calls, and then when the fires kind of blow up or they cross into maybe state lands, we also have our Division of Forestry and Wildlife who are specialized in, in wildland fire. And so we, we are limited to like who's there on the ground on the island. And the example Eric brought up in 2018 was very similar to the fires. On Maui, you had fires in Lahaina, in above, uh, you know, up, up, up country Maui and Kula, which are still burning, in uh, Kihei. And so you had your firefighting force very spread thin. And again, we're talking about conditions which are like extending beyond their ability, capacity to suppress and contain the fires. Clay, I read that. Lahaina has this really sophisticated emergency response system. They've got like 80 sirens or had 80 sirens at position. But what you're saying is even with all that technology, even with a state-of-the-art security system like that, when a fire moves this quickly with this much power, it, it, none of that matters. I mean, it can just happen I, that, that fast. Yeah, that's my opinion on the matter with respect to the emergency response. If Unless you had someone standing right next to that fire immediately and reporting it immediately when it started, the time window between that fire reaching the homes in this instance uh, would have been incredibly short and um, nothing that I don't think uh, a siren or anyone, you know, sort of the person who's in charge of doing the siren, the emergency management authority, like they, the time is just too short. It's just mm -hmm. too quick of a response which again is the message we get from working with the firefighters who all tell us time and time again, we do these field trips and site visits with them, with the landowners, with communities, and they are saying we need more support long before the fires occur. We need people to be working on these lands to manage the fuels so they're not as dangerous, not so difficult to suppress and actually give what, you know, remove, relieve some of the burden off the shoulders of our emergency responders. And Clay, now that there has been this horrible tragedy there with the Lanai wildfire, do you think there will be this support going forward to, to change some of these agricultural practices, to be more mindful of the types of plants that are being grown in some of these landscapes so there isn't another tragedy like this in the future? Well, you know, one, one can only hope, um, but I think we are in a position, and this is really a testament to the work um, that, that people like Eric are doing and folks that like Sydney had mentioned this as well, like people on Maui, and I wrote about this to the Maui News after these 2019 fires, we lost 21 homes. There's people in these places who are already working on these projects. They are restoring uh, low ecolo to act as fire breaks. They are doing reforestation. They're working with the firefighters uh, to like do fuel breaks and fuels mitigation. Our problem is the resources needed to do that at scale, coordinating across all these private landowners, um, and really, you know, re <laughs> reorienting ourselves uh, like as a society to understand that, you know, caring for the land will be means caring for people, and is the only way forward to um, kind of prepare ourselves for these kinds of disasters as as they occur again. Thanks, Clay. I want to go back to Eric now as we wind down the show, and and Eric. 
this is interesting because on one hand, there's this huge need to take better care of the land. And obviously you and other people are doing a lot to make that happen with regard to the research and the types of agricultural projects you have. And I just want to know, is it possible to do both? Because obviously the tourism industry is huge and some of these economic factors are huge. Is it possible to take better care of the land and to create some of these fire breaks and other these other fire mitigation strategies that are needed, but at the same time still allow the tourism industry to thrive or are they mutually exclusive what's your thought i think it's more better if we work together i think um we cannot be siloed and i think one of the issues we have with a lot of um is that there's so many good well-meaning efforts but they're all siloed yeah so we really have to have the best thinkers the best doers the people whose flippers are on the ground coming together, the technology, the cultural people, the mental health workers, the health, the, the substance abuse program, uh, because a lot of these, you know, I mean, it's art, but it's also the design of, of your community and creating these green barriers that we can live together. I mean, tourism is part of our culture. Yeah. I mean, so, but we got to do it in a way that our cultural areas, our vahipana are alive and vibrant. So that people come to see it's not just a make-believe Hawaii with plastic coconut trees that you know that mm-hmm. serve no function. Yeah, <laughs> it has to be. It has to be functional. And it has to be real. And people want to see real Hawaii. Otherwise, just go to a Disneyland kind of a place. You know. And so that's the challenges that we have. Right. Right. No plastic coconuts, none of the Disneyland experience. Eric, thank you for for having the last word here on Native America Calling. And folks, we are going to have to wrap up the show, but anybody who didn't get a chance to call in today, please uh, connect with us on social media. We've got Instagram, we've got Facebook. Like today's show, go ahead and put a comment there. Let us know what you thought. Give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com, and voice your thoughts there as well. At this point, I am going to wrap us up here for the day, and uh, thank you to all of our guests today, Dr. Sidney Iokea, Eric Enos, Clay Traurnicht, and Carmen Hulu-Lindsay for sharing their insights on the Maui fire, and of course, continued thoughts and prayers for the people of Hawaii. Join us tomorrow for a very special broadcast, previewing the Pathways Indigenous Arts Festival located on tribal lands of the Pueblo of Pewaukee in northern New Mexico. And on Friday, we'll be broadcasting live from the Santa Fe Indian Market. I hope you can join us, or better yet, see us in person. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed, and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is, enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.